So what I want to do is kind of apply the ideas of permaculture to how we can evolve a regenerative building. Now, permaculture being a design approach has a whole series of principles, a series of ethics. It's, it's ways to design. And I want to take this from kind of a permacultural perspective of how do we evolve some sort of regenerative design. So I've got about, I think, four slides now that are just words, and I apologize for them, but I kind of wanted to lay this stuff out, and then we'll look at some more pictures after that. So next slide, please. Okay, so I'm, I'm thinking this as a unified landscape where buildings and land work together. So the questions I'm asking are these. You know, how can just being on a site be a net gain rather than a loss for the environment the way it almost always is? How can we tie buildings into the land, not just aesthetically, we're pretty good at that. You know, from Frank Lloyd Wright and his wonderful prairie designs that were horizontal and fit with the prairie, we know a lot about aesthetics, making buildings look like they fit in, but how can they functionally fit in with the landscape? How can they work with the landscape? And then, how can a building heal its own damage to the site? You know, all construction sites crash the land. And also, how can you heal past damage to the land? Because usually by the time we put houses on a place, we've already done a bunch of nasty things to it. So how do you heal that? Next slide. That one's not in Is there any way to put that around? Can that, can that be done? There may be a couple of those in here, so we'll, we'll, we'll go through all the iterations here. Sure, yeah. I mean, anyone here is left-handed would have no problem. Yes. Okay, so so in order to design something, first we do a permaculture an assessment. You know, you look and see what's going on at the site. So you look at the site, you know, we all know these, we know what the effects of, of conventional construction are. I mean, it's, it's all this stuff. It's, you know, when you generate the materials, it destroys something. When you transport the materials, it destroys more stuff. And then the construction, you know, you're compacting the soil of the site. There's erosion because it's raining on this bare site. You're losing habitat of the species that were on the site. The sites are always noisy except for where we're working importantly today with the stuff we're doing. So, you know, there's an assessment of the effects of construction. Next slide. The effects of inhabiting the site when you're actually living there, and there could be a big long list here, but, you know, you're using energy, you're using water, you're producing waste you know, while you're living on the site. You've created a whole bunch of impermeable surfaces, the roof, the sidewalks, the driveway, even the lawn when you're walking on it, it eventually gets compacted, and so there's a lot of water problems. And there's permanent shade on the north side of the building. It's deep, dark shade, as dark as, as shade ever gets in a forest. And you know, we could go on with this list of bunch of all the effects of having the site. But there are also are opportunities when we move into a site. You know, all those big surfaces become areas for water and energy collection. Um, human beings are always, you know, when you live somewhere, you're always bringing stuff on there. You're bringing food, you're bringing building materials, you're bringing, you know, all the stuff of daily life on its site, so you have an opportunity for accumulating all that stuff. Um, you often wind up with more microclimates on a site. You know, if you move into a forest or a meadow or something that just has one uniform microclimate, usually in a house house site, you've got, you know, north side and south side and roofed over areas. You've got lots of different microclimates. Also, the landscaping does the same thing. Um, increased edge, human beings are really great at creating edge. And edges are very interesting places. There's the zone where, say, a meadow meets a forest. You get all the species who live in the meadow, all the species who live in the forest, and species who live only at that intersection as well. 
So the tremendous areas of diversity, translation of energy, transformation of forces from one thing to another, all occur at a greater biodiversity, not always, but intelligent humans, conscious humans, ecologically minded humans, can bring greater biodiversity to a site. And then just the simple fact of human stewardship. I mean, I think if human beings have a role on this planet at all, we could be stewards of the planet. We could be kind of the eyes and ears of the planet who look at things and assess it and try and figure out how things are going and trying to make them better. So humans can be a detriment to a site, but they, they really can be a benefit to simple human stewardship. So usually when we build on a site, I mean, this is a really pretty adobe down in Santa Fe, but it also, the effect of most buildings, the intent of most architecture is to wall off the environment. You know, this is, these are walls here. The outside is not getting in, the inside is not getting out. That's, that's intentional. That's what design really does. And yet, you can also use buildings to integrate. I mean, this, this would be my dream. This is what regenerative building does, is to integrate the outside with the inside, to make much more of a flow so the building is working with the, the site and vice versa. Next slide. You know, so, so instead of walls that wall off the site, we've got walls that conduct you to the house. We've got little spaces enfolded by those walls. We've got you know, a porch on the building that helps that gentle that transition inside. We've got lots of nice little microclimates here. So you can have walls that, that keep you away from your environment. You can have walls that welcome the environment in. Next. So I want to look at a few of the things that, that the ways buildings can interact with their environment. Um, you can create courtyards, just an L-shaped building like this will, will fold a little space. Now you've got you know, a quiet little corner, a, a microclimate, nice space where there's a little garden, just you know, enfolding the courtyard. The, the building itself can enfold the environment, or next slide, in the right order. You can create microclimates. Through, through the building going on. You, this changes with the, the seasons here. This trellis has grapes overhead. This is down in Tijuana, but you, know, you can build them anywhere. Um, grapes overhead that, that create a nice shady space in the summertime when the leaves fall off and it's open in the wintertime when certainly up here you, are, you want that nice sunshine. So human habitation can really enhance microclimates. Next. Um, so I want talk a little bit about the ways to change and organize and help the flows, enhancing all the flows that are on the site. And the big three flows that you have in a, in a site with a building on it are water and energy and nutrients. So I'm, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on each one of those, just looking at the ways you can work with each of those, those flows and organize them and enhance them and harvest them or deflect them and all the different things you can do with those kinds of flows as, as human inhabitants on a site. So water, here we've got a bamboo gutter system that's harvesting water, and the cool thing going on here is where the bamboo penetrates, the, the, the bamboo uprights on the trellis penetrate the gutter, there are actually little holes drilled in the gutter. So the water, you know, if you, if you measure your holes and get them just right, you get a nice trickle irrigation straight down the, the bamboo uprights down to the, uh, the roots of the pine stick. So here's you know, a totally passive system that creates drip irrigation. It's, it's organizing and enhancing the water flows on the site and sending it right where it needs to be. Next. Um, hard surfaces, how do you deal with them? There are lots of different ways to 
get water into the ground. You know, it's one of the biggest drawbacks. I mean, here in Portland, all these paved surfaces, and I don't need to tell you guys a lot of this stuff, you know about it. We're taking all the water and pumping it into the sewer systems, overloading it, you know, all the rainwater, and then down into the ocean. So figuring out ways to get water to percolate back into the ground rather than a lot of hardscaping. These, I think, are just sort of like a little cinder block that's buried in the ground. Um, but you've probably seen lots of different ways of doing this. And just plain old bricks or non-mortar um, paving will work really well rather than paving things over. Next slide. Okay. Um, this actually went earlier with microclimates, but that's okay. We are a little bit out of order. Um, this is, so a building can fold space. The space also can kind of enfold the building. This is a south-facing wall on a house in Tucson. Blisters in the hot summer sun, but by putting a little shade cloth over it and a trellis, trellis up some beans, you now have a, a seasonal sunblock. And it softens the edge of the building. You know, where does the actual human habitation begin here? Is it the actual wall? Well, no, it's really a little bit further out, and then you're kind of out in this dappled sunshine. But it's, you're using the softened edge of the building to mitigate the effects of energy coming pouring into the building. Next slide. Biodiversity is, uh, is something that you know, the human beings are, are, if we're conscious, we can really create at a building site. You know, this is up at the Bullock Brothers place on Orcas Island. Um, you can create wonderful habitat. I mean, I've, when I moved into my place, I sensed this down in southern Oregon. I sensed the number of, of bees that were there, bees and beneficial wasps, and I counted about nine different species. After I put in a lot of insect attracting plants um, and just, you know, more biodiversity, all the exotics that human beings love to bring in with them all, food plants and pretty flowers. I've now got over 20 different species of bees, so I've more than doubled the biodiversity. I don't know where they came from. I didn't bring them in, but you know, I didn't find them before. They, they found me. So we can do this by conscious design. It's really increasing biodiversity in site. Next. All right, so back to water. Here we go. Well, you know, you can you can just create pretty water places. This is a space on Cape Cod that's actually fed by the rooftop catchment. Um, you know, the, the water comes down the downspout and goes into this pond rather than having to fill the pond off with municipal water. Um, and you know, when you put water on a site, automatically you you created more biodiversity. I mean, every time I build a pond somewhere, within two or three days. There are all kinds of water insects in it, and then a couple weeks later, there are frogs in it, and again, they, they come and find it. So you can create that kind of diversity. And this is, again, linked to the house because it's, the water is fed from the downspout system. Next. Plain old water catchment, a set of six 55-gallon drums that are catching roof water. Now, another fairly obvious way to, uh, to pick up water from the house, to organize and harvest the water flows. Next. And uh, another type of rooftop. This is a round earth cistern down in uh, outside of Tucson, Barbara Rose's place. I, if I remember correctly, this is not cement stabilized. It is just plain old round earth, and then she's plastered it on the inside with some sort of a waterproofing. Um, out there, they only get 12 inches of rain a year, so you don't really have to worry that much about uh, about the round earth eroding too much. Uh, here, obviously, we, we want to stabilize it or plaster it or something like that. So, Randall's cistern that touches water off of Barbara's roof. Next slide. And then just a, another type of water catchment, a little bit hard to see what's going on here. This is use of salvage materials in the city. This is in Tucson, and this concrete 
container that's sunk into this rock foundation is a septic tank that was defective. It had a crack somewhere in the top, so it couldn't be used. It's brand new, brought in by the crane that delivers your septic tank, and set on top of this rock foundation that Brad Lancaster and his brother, a couple of crazy young men, moved all these big rocks and built this foundation. So rainwater lands on the roof, comes down through these pipes, and drains into the 800 or 900-gallon clean septic tank, and comes out through the spigot down there. So again, integrating water attachment. They use this for their landscaping. They use a little bit of it for their bath water sometimes as well. Percolating water into the soil another way. You can build swales. And even in a city lot, there's no such thing as flat land. Well, I guess nowadays they're using laser leveling and this sort of thing, so you probably can get it flat. But any natural bit of land, even if it looks flat, water always flows one way or another on it. And the idea with the swale is, it's basically a long skinny pond. You dig a shallow trench, right dead level on contour, water comes moving down the slope, you know, in this case, comes moving down here, rainwater, runoff water, falls into the swale, stops there, spreads out, percolates down into the soil, and then gradually moves underground downhill. And that's where you want it. You want it you know, a mantra that we say in permaculture all the time is the cheapest place to store water is in the soil. So getting into the soil where your plants are going to use it, you know, that's, that's the place to put it. Rather than building, I mean, it's much cheaper to put it into the soil than it is to build a tank and then deliver it to the soil from the tank or the pond. Build, build your soil up, get water into it, and it'll stay there for a very long time. Um, I'm told a foot of good topsoil will hold three inches of water. So if you've got a foot of good soil in your yard, you can think of that as a three-inch deep lake. You, know, you can imagine how much it would cost to build a pond that same size and hold that much water. So percolating water into the soil is a, a strategy that you can use in, uh, in trying to get your land to interact with the building and the water collection system, you know, organizing the flows. Next slide. All right, so let's look at energy a little bit. That's the, the second of the, the big three flows, energy collection. Um, this is the, the Eco Home down in Los Angeles, Julia Russell's place, where she's taken a pretty conventional, I think it's a 1980s or 20s house and done amazing stuff to it. Um, you know, the fairly obvious things, the photovoltaic panels and then some hot water um, panels up there as well. So, you know, your roof, Instead of being a detriment, you've got this nice big collection system, so use it. This is, this is what you can do with it uh, for energy harvesting and collection. Next slide. Um, also, energy mitigation. This is the south side of the house, uh, outside of Santa Fe, and it, gets, it used to get really, really hot, so they have this little patio that they just couldn't use in anything but really nice spring days. So they covered it over with a grape trellis, and now again, it's a, it's a very nice little microclimate. Cuts down on the, well, there's no cooling bill in this house. They don't have air conditioning. But if you did have air conditioning, it would cut down on your cooling bill and cut down on your heating bill in the uh, summertime or the wintertime as it loses, the trellis loses its leaves. So you can affect energy consumption and energy flows by landscaping around the house. You know, wind breaks, creating microclimates like this, that sort of thing. So detailing out the landscaping so it works with energy flows rather than just you know planning something there because I want it over there. Think of how it's going to fit in relationship with the rest of the landscape. Next. Um, same sort of thing going on here, south-facing side of the house. You know, 
That's, that's actually some uh, energy collection in there. There's, there's hot, hot water system inside. This is in southern New Hampshire, and they deliberately sited this house right at the edge of a forest. They removed a few trees where the house was um, and used those actually for building materials for the house. But it's set into a nice little U-shaped south-facing sun trap so that the forest behind it stops the cold north wind during the wintertime and it's just nestled in very nicely. You know, the house is, is set up in its own little microclimate to, again, conserve energy. Next. Okay, nutrient flows. Uh, this is a composting toilet called a uh, Sunny John. Obviously, human waste is, uh, is one of the big nutrient flows you've got going on in your house. Generally, it's not thought of as a nutrient. It's thought of as a waste that you flush down the toilet and go out into the river and out in the ocean and goodbye. Um, and and it, it becomes a problem when it's actually a really good resource. Again, I don't have to tell you guys this. Um, nice little composting toilet. It's, it's sealed up. Pretty airtight, south-facing window with a black pipe here that acts as a draft. The toilet seat itself has a few little holes drilled in it, so air gets sucked down into the toilet through the vent that's down in the pit beneath the toilet, and air goes up you know, through that vent up to the top. So it, it keeps it odor-free, um, and inside it's composting nicely, and after it's composted for a while, you, or when it's full, you empty it out, set it somewhere to compost or mix it with compost, let it go for six months or so to let the, the pathogens in it die off, six months to a year if there are potential human pathogens in it, and use it as, as a nutrient. Keep nutrients on your site. You know, we tend to think, and the engineering approaches in arrow, things come in, they do something in the black box, and then they go out and they're gone. And instead of that arrow system, Turn all those things into loops. Anything that comes in gets stored and transformed and used. You get more and more and more and more. Build up biomass, build up biodiversity, build up energy. Now change those arrows into loops. Next slide. Composting, that's it's an obvious one. Again, any organic matter that you bring into your site, food scraps and that sort of thing, keep them on site, composting them, turn them into soil, turn them into food, turn them into plants and animals. Next. And speaking of plants and animals, there's a, another sort of larger scale composting. This is a Russian olive, a bunch of Russian olive branches um, that have been cut down. And first you feed the berries to the local turkeys or, or whatever um, poultry you've got. And then you can take the berry-free, the seed-free mulch, then spread it out, you know, compost it, put it in a brush pile, put it into a you know, form of a garden called Google Culture, a mound garden with branches in it. Lots of different things that you can do with your brush on your site. You're creating biomass and you're harvesting it and you're using it on the site. Next. Uh, again, you know, food production, that's, that's a way of, of closing those nutrient cycles. You know, growing food on your own site, taking care of yourself. Next. And animal production, you know, you can turn that food into animals if you want to move up a one trophic level a little bit higher on the food chain if you're your sensibilities feel that working with animals are okay. Um, you don't have to kill them with, with chickens. You can just use the eggs, or you can just employ the chickens. They'll very happily till your soil for you and use little removable tractor devices. You, know, you guys have probably seen chicken tractors before. It's just a bottom of the stage. You put birds in, and they till up the soil, and they manure it, and they, you know, here's where they were yesterday, here's where they are today. They're just working their way down the garden bed, working for you. 
right? And putting things in the right place. This is a, a big deal in permaculture. All these things that, that have natural activities, like chickens like to scratch and they shit, well, you get them to scratch and shit where you want them to. And they're working for you while they're just in the course of, of doing their daily business. You just put it in the right place. That's, that's all you need to do. You know, they're not working. The humans aren't working here. The birds are doing it for them. And they're happy. Next. Uh, building materials from the site. Not many people have enough land, certainly not in, in the Portland area, to actually grow timber for building. But bamboo and other fiber crops like this are not at all hard to grow um, in a small lot. You know, bamboo is just great. I mean, even if you're going to use it just for tomato trellises or something like that. But um, as I'm sure people here know, it's also a wonderful building material. Uh, on site, growing your own building materials. Yeah. You can, you can do this with bamboo. Well, the Balinese can do that with bamboo. <laughs> I don't know if we can on um, this slide. Uh, again, more on-site harvesting and building materials. This is some, I think it's barley straw that uh, came into a, that some of you who were in the National Building Colloquium down in, um, in uh, Chinoa in Mendocino County. Um, we do a little bit of fashion work. I don't think the barley was grown on site, but you could. You could grow on site. And then next slide, please. Uh, so here you've got bamboo and thatch. You've got yourself a building grown, you know, potentially from your own backyard or, or someplace right nearby. Next slide. And you know, again, just local materials. You know, straw from someplace near clay from someplace nearby. You know, we're doing it here. Obviously, the straw is not coming from right around here. But the clay in most these sites that we're working on right here in this convergence comes from you know, right, right at the site, which I just think is wonderful. Next. Um, another big, another, uh, another form of, of nutrient harvesting that is often overlooked is gray water systems. Gray water is simply the water from your shower or sink or laundry. Um, toilet water is considered black water. It's, it's uh, more difficult to work with, but laundry water and that kind of thing is almost clean. Not clean enough to drink, but it's certainly clean enough for plants um, and the stuff that we normally think of as contaminants like soaps. When it goes into the soil and the soil microbes work on it, it becomes nutrients. And they are high phosphate soaps that everybody used to hate so much. Hey, phosphorus is a, uh, a really rare nutrient in the soil. Um, it's hard to come by. So you know, get, get that gray water into the soil and use it there. So there's, there's a washing machine on the other side of that wall, and the gray water just goes into this little tank that's on the north side of a, a building in Los Alamos, New Mexico, where it's nice and, you know, nice and hot. But this is a free and a guilt-free source of water in the desert here, where you're, you're using this water anyway. You just recycle it. Next slide. Another gray water system, again, in an undisclosed location in Northern California. Um, very nice little setup. You know, just a, a tank here to, to recycle gray water that's, that's coming out of the household. Um, you can, now, you're turning this water and its so-called pollutants into, into growing things, and it's really pretty. I mean, you've got, you've got flowers in here instead of, instead of it running down the sewer and creating a problem somewhere. Next slide. And so here's, here's an example of just, ignore that building. We're just looking at the pond. Um, you know, this, this is where that gray water goes. Um, you know, you can see the koi in here. It's, the gray water, once it's gone through the wetland, it's clean. This is a, a duck and koi pond here. So, you know, and, and then the water, so you've got gray water coming out of the house, the waste, 
moving down, growing plants first, then coming into this pond, turning into you know, fish and ducks, and then being used to water the garden. So you're harvesting all the, you know, as, as much energy out of it at each, each step as you possibly can. You know, instead of the straight line, you're getting this kind of zigzag. It stops here, and you get something from it. It stops here, and you get something, you know, just zigzags back and forth instead of going all the way out with no stop. You stop it as many times, as many places, and extract as much energy and nutrients from it as you can. Next slide. Um, so I want to go through a few permaculture principles. And you know, these are really the core of, of permaculture principles that, that Bill Mollison and a bunch of other people have developed by looking at natural systems, by looking at how indigenous people do things, and try to figure out why they work. You know, what, can you, what principles can you extract from nature and from sustainable cultures and apply them to your own design? You know, this, is, this is all design we're talking about here. Think about how to design things. So a couple things going on here. This weird-looking little set of ponds is in the right relative location. That's the, the little buzz phrase that we use, is relative location. Put things in the right place. Put things, you know, like I showed you in that chicken, chicken tractor setup. Put things together in a way that they'll work together just going about their natural business. So the two things happening here, one is that Kevin Burkhardt lives up in Seattle to put these three little garbage can ponds together and they've got fish in them. He linked them together with these tubes that are full of water and fish use the tubes as little freeways to zoom back and forth between them. It's just it's amazing to watch. I tried to get a picture of them going, but they were just too fast for me. So, you know, I think let's go over Joe's Joe's pond tonight and they just they zip right on over. Um, so you know he connected them together so that each fish has three times as much habitat as they normally would. But the other the, the you know more significant thing that he's done is that he's put this whole pond system in the right place. It's against the southeast side of his house. So the sunlight bounces off these ponds and reflects into his house so on those gray winter afternoons. He's got these nice little shimmering lights off of the ceiling in his living room. So just, just by, you know, these ponds could have gone anywhere in his yard, but he thought about where to put them so that he'd get this extra benefit of reflected light off of them. And so think about where you put stuff, especially in relation to the building, to connect the rest of the landscape to the building. Next slide. So he's, he's got this trellis system that's shading his, you know, this is a hardy kiwi coming up, see these wires up here. The kiwi very quickly makes its way up onto those wires and shades his whole house. But it's not only producing shade, next slide, it's producing food for him because it's a hardy kiwi. So, you know, again, stacking functions. Next slide. So the other side of that principle, each element should perform multiple functions, is that each function that you're trying to achieve should be performed by multiple elements. That's a really nasty bit of jargon there. But basically what I'm saying is build redundancy in your system. If you've got something important you're trying to do, don't just do it in one way. Do it in multiple ways for a bunch of reasons. If one of those strategies you're using fails, you've got all the others to work. But also what usually happens is that all those strategies combine to give you nice synergistic benefits. And the example here, so, so if we, we're in a place where we need to conserve water, and we don't need to conserve water. This obviously, this is more desert, is certainly a place where you want to conserve water. So there's our function. How do we conserve water in the landscape? Next slide. What's going on here is that this design uses five, at least five different strategies for water conservation. 
you know, it's this really nice, lush landscape, but it's in the desert, it's in Los Alamos, it doesn't use, I, I believe Mary told me that she's not using any municipal water for her watering now. It's all just natural, either rainwater, since they do get, you know, even though it's only 18 inches of rain a year, it comes like every three weeks, a half inch of rain, slightly different rain pattern from ours. They don't have a long dry season. They get it eh, relatively regularly, you really don't get that much of it. So she doesn't use municipal water. And the strategy she's using to do this, the five different ones, next slide, is lots of organic matter in the soil. And like I said before, store your water in the soil. Contour the land to hold water. I mean, I showed you the swales before. But this little lawn here, it's the only lawn in her backyard, the only, only lawn she's got. It's slightly ditched. It's about four inches deeper in the center than it is around the edges. So that it acts as its own water collection system. By gently contouring your land, you can move water from where you don't want it to where you do want it. You can hold it where you do want it. You can, you can create these little collection systems. So, strategy number, that, what are we at there? Like four, okay. Um, is contour the land, hold water. And the next one is put the plants in the right place. I, I don't want to say, you know, use only drought tolerant plants. You don't need to go to that extreme. But plants that need more water, put them in close to the house. Plants that need less water, these are all south, um, southwest desert natives, the same as there, a bunch of other native plants that are further from the house where she's less likely to have water. You know, she's got a spigot and a hose and downspouts and all that sort of thing right close to the house, and she's there to water. Whereas just even 20 or 30 feet from the house, you're not going to be there as often to, uh, to do the watering. So choose the places where the plants go, put the plants that are more thirsty where there is going to be water or where you're going to be to bring water to it. So those are the, the five that all fit together to give you a tremendous amount of water conservation. You know, that's your function, is water conservation and your five strategies are those that I just went through. So any important function you're trying to achieve, do it a bunch of different ways. Uh, next slide. Another design tool we use is something called sector analysis. Um, I'll just go through this, this really quickly, but it's basically, you know, it's common sense. Think about where the sun is, think about where your winter wind comes from, think about where, in an urban area, it's, sector analysis gets really interesting, because permaculture was devised mostly originally for, you know, for agriculture, where you're thinking about where's wildfire coming from, and where's, you know, where's the wildlife corridor, where's that coming from, and I did a, a course down in Los Angeles and had, you know, downtown, I mean, you know, a mile from the big tall buildings, it was in the heart of LA, and I asked the, the participants, so what are some of the sectors that you, you guys have to deal with? What are the energies coming from off the site that you have to deal with? And they pointed out the billboard sector, there was a great big billboard behind their place, it was really brightly lit at night, so that was nasty, but it cast shade during the day, so that's something to design for. There was the bad smell sector from the fast food restaurant on the corner that came through. There was the cop sector, because the police came through the alley every night at about 11.30, rousting people out. There was the school children sector from the school across the street. Four times a day, hundreds of children would come across their front yard. So it presented really interesting design issues that you, know, you wouldn't think about. So in a city like this, you're not just thinking about natural you know, sun and wind and that sort of thing. You're thinking about you know, human-type flows as well when you're designing sectors. Um, next slide. So you know the obvious one, put the greenhouse on the south side of the house, put it in the sun se sector where it will collect, collect sun. Next. Um, so putting all the 
these principles together. This, this to me is just a wonderful example of how you can combine a bunch of different permaculture principles to make something that's really cool. This is a cob chicken coop at some in Woody Creek, Colorado, just outside of Aspen. It was designed by Jerome Lassitowski, who's a really great designer out there. And the idea is that in, in that part of Colorado, spoiled hay is a, is a very big resource. People grow grass and then they harvest it and it rains. You know, they can't predict the rain. It comes any old time in Colorado. So they, they wind up with a lot of spoiled hay. Animals can't eat it. You'd think you'd be able to mulch with it, but if you've ever made the mistake of mulching your garden with hay rather than straw, hay has all the seed heads in it that's full of weeds, so you immediately grow a nice crop of weeds and grasses if you mulch with hay. Whereas straw, that's that's just the stems, the seed heads have been removed, so you want to always mulch with straw. So they've got all the spoiled hay. It's a great resource, but what do you do with it? So Jerome designs these chicken yards that are on a slope like this. You throw the bale of spoiled hay up in the top of the chicken yard. The chickens bust up the bale because they're interested in the weed seeds in it. They kick it around. That keeps them occupied. You know, the chickens will peck themselves if they peck each other if they don't have something to do. So this keeps them busy, keeps their feet out of the mud because now the, the straw yard, the chicken yard has got stuff on the ground. And they shit into it, obviously. They manure it. The manured weed-free hay makes its way down to the bottom of the slope because it's on a slope. And then he's got a little gate down there at the bottom where the hinges are. So by the time the chickens have cleaned all the weed seeds out of it, manured it very nicely, and grown chickens from the spoiled hay, he's now got this beautiful resource to now mulch his garden with. It's clean and full of manure. So by putting all these elements in the right place, you know, the slope, the chickens, the spoiled hay, and his garden right nearby, now, he's, he's, again, he's not doing any of this work. It's all being done for him. And he takes a waste resource and turns it into something very valuable just by sticking it in with all these processes that are going on naturally. So let's go through a few more. Um, you can do retrofits that integrate landscape to, with the house. You know, this is Larry Santoyo's place. He's a really great permaculture designer down in Los Alsos, uh, which is near San Luis Obispo. And he, lives in a pretty conventional house, but he's just stacked his garden right into the house. Does a wonderful job. He grows all these things that we can't grow here, like bananas and citrus. So this is what most building is going to have to be, is retrofitting, figuring out how to integrate the landscape with existing buildings, because you know, there are a lot of existing buildings. But new construction, let's go on to the next one. Um, this is the Hermitage down at Occidental Arts and Ecology Center. And this, to me, is a, is a good example of a pretty much regenerative building where, I mean, okay, what's going on here? It's, you know, it's, it's mostly cob, and there is some straw bale in it. I believe there's a little bit of rammed earth. There is a wattle wall, some branches that were woven together, two walls then stuffed with hay in between for insulation. Um, and there's a bam, this great little bamboo truss system. Um, yeah, actually, let's, let's go to the next slide. Through a couple, of, you know, it's got your standard beautiful natural building features in it, little dishes and places to eat. Lovely little spot. Um, next, bamboo truss system, which is really cool. So now we're starting to get into the regenerative aspects because you know, most of the soil came from on the site, and the bamboo was grown about 150 miles away. It's not exactly right next door, but there was a really nice 
a crop of hen and bamboo, which is a really good structural bamboo. And I think, if anyone knows, I think this was Daryl DeBauer who, um, yeah, who designed this. Um, works with bamboo trusses. It's, you can kind of see how the trusses work here. It's pretty interesting. I wasn't able to get a real good photo. The next one um, shows a detail of one corner of the bamboo truss. You know, the, the peak is up here, so we've got one half of the truss. Really, really nifty looking stuff. Um, next slide. So the way this building is regenerative, the way it's actually healing the site, is, I mean, the simple thing here is there's rainwater catchment coming off the building, so we're collecting water on the site. But when they went into this site, it's, it's at the edge where a forest turns into a meadow, and the site had been grazed for a long time, so the soil was compacted and the grazing animals had eliminated a lot of the native grasses. There's mostly oats and cheatgrass and you know, stuff in there that, that you know, non-native grasses. So as they kind of trashed the site during their construction and trampled a lot of things, they also harvested native grasses nearby, native wildflowers, and then seeded in after they were done. So they were collecting local resources and repairing the damage they had done, but also tilting the landscape towards a more native landscape. Um, the forest nearby was really a, a lot of thick young firs in it, and when we started doing fire suppression a century ago or so, um, a lot of these areas were fairly open oak um, and other hardwood woodlands and a nice park, savannas, a lot of space between the trees. But once you do fire suppression in this part of the country, the dug firs just spring up like mad and close it all in. Um, so what they did was they fought like fire. They thinned out a lot of the, the Douglas fir seedlings and then used those as the bigger ones as, as the poles in the building and the smaller ones and the branches they wove in as the water walls. They were harvesting local resources, but also thinning out the forest, reducing the fire burden, and turning the forest back into what it was more like when the Native Americans were doing really regular burnings and, and transforming the landscape into a totally fire-adapted landscape. So they're kind of bringing it back to that with, with what they were doing. They also harvested a lot of the grasses and used that hay as insulation in the building. Um, they built swales around the building to, to catch rainwater, runoff water, and percolated in the soil. They dug the swales extra deep and used the soil from the swales to build the building. And so they're doing a bunch of things on the site. They're actually trying to restore the, the site and letting the construction process itself and the process of living there be things that are actually healing the land. So the, the whole idea here, um, yeah, let's, let's, I think this should be the next one, the last slide. Um, once again, we'll go back to this, this uh, secret place in Northern California. Um, of just, you know, buildings that work with the land, you know, not, so think not only about putting up a building, but, but how can that building permeable to the landscape and work with the landscape, work with those flows of water and energy and nutrients and enhance them and organize them and guide them and benefit from them so the human habitation can be not just cool buildings, which is the stuff we're doing here and it's really neat and I love doing it, but buildings that, buildings that heal.